Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello there, Matt. How are you, mate? Yeah, really good, thanks. Always good to be chatting to you. Always good to be talking about council things. I get a bit excited about this each week, actually, because there's Isn't so that wonderful? Much... I do as well, actually, to be honest. Yeah, well, so much that happens each week, and I just want everyone to know about all this stuff yes, that's happening. absolutely. you get a bit in a bubble of all these exciting things that happen at mm. council, and then you talk to people out there in the rest of the world, the, the non-council bubble, yes. and you say, oh, what about this exciting thing that's happening, and what about this other fantastic thing? I go, oh, I haven't heard about that. So mm. getting a chance to talk about it, talk about it with you is great, yes. but also... People obviously listen to the podcast, they download it, and it gives them an opportunity to hear more and find out more about what's happening because there's a lot that goes on. And we've got a, a large Rio de Janeiro, yes. 7,536 square kilometres approximately. So there's a lot more that goes on when you start to encompass things that are happening in Wellington as well. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah, it's exciting. There's lots of things happening. It's all good news and yeah. fantastic. Mate, look, I must admit, though, when you're uh, when you, as you say, you're out there, you're walking around, you're meeting people every sort of day and you're hearing this stuff and... And you're hearing about what's going on there, and that's part of the reason why I, I must admit I enjoy doing this as well with you. Now you know what though, when you're looking out there right now, it's hasn't it been beautiful with this weather lately from the point of view of the, the little bit extra rain and how green it's looking around the place as well. A bit of rain around, and I'm not sure if it was predicted for quite as much as we did get in the end, but I'm not sure that I'd like to be a weatherman because it's just trying to get your predictions yeah, right. Yeah, well, they, they keep sort of saying we're meant to have this dry winter, but it doesn't really seem to be happening so much so. No, which is probably good. I mean, every now and again when I hear the farmers talking about the fact that it's been a bit dry, a bit of rain will be needed, mm. it seems to have been yes. coming. So that's always good. Yes. And with so many other things happening in our community and our economy really going along quite well, if the farmers in the region, again, we've only got mm. 2.5% of our employment in the Dubbo Regional Council local government area. Mm. So it sounds like farming's not that important for Dubbo, but there's not a lot of employment in our LGA, but the farming in the region. So when you go mm. out west of Dubbo and you start to look at all that money that comes through Dubbo Absolutely. from the farmers, even though you might look at the data and go, well, farming's not that important, 2.5%'s not that much. It's what they do with that though, isn't it? Well, it's not so much the, the farms that live in our LGA. Mm. They're certainly important for that 2.5%, but the farmers around the region, mm. the money they bring to Dubbo Absolutely. is very important for yeah. our economy. So you really do notice it when there's a good, strong season. Yep. And if we can have a couple of those in a row before the next drought or flood comes yes, along. the inevitability of that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But that really bodes well for our economy with so many other things happening as well. Yeah. Now, speaking of things happening, it was uh, great to see Samuel Johnson here in town there uh, during the week as well. So, now, did you get a chance to meet Samuel? I did. Actually, he rang me a few months ago and talked about a whole range of things that he's doing. Mm. And, look, I think he's, he's very positive in what he wants to do for Dubbo. He wants to put Dubbo on the map. Mm. And certainly, he, he did a few things while he was in Dubbo. And actually, he went around the region, visited a few other places around the region. Mm. But it's all about getting this precision medicine in Dubbo. Of course, people would be familiar with the story that unfortunately his sister was diagnosed with cancer when she mm. died. Uh, obviously, terrible story from there. But Samuel's turned that around to be a positive as hard as it is to turn the death of a sibling into a positive. Mm. He's really turned that into a positive. He's created this foundation, this charity called Love Your Sister, mm. doing some fundraising for that. He's raised an incredible amount of money, somewhere right. in the vicinity of $20 million so wow. far. Wow. But what he wants to do with that and where he wants to use Dubbo for this mm. is he's really talking about precision medicine in terms of cancer treatment where you really drill down to exactly the right drug that's mm. used for the particular cancer treatment. And you talk about this in very generic terms, yep. but again, the logic makes sense. Is this this genome therapy? Is that the Correct. type of stuff? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And so I don't, I won't profess to know enough about the technical details. I really mm. only know what I talked to Samuel about. And mm. again, he did ring me a couple months ago. We had a good conversation on the phone about all of this. And he said, I'm coming to Dubbo. I want mm. to sit down and talk to you about it, which he did while he was in Dubbo this week. And so that sounds to me like it's sensible and logical. Mm. The exciting part for us is that he wants to use Dubbo as the first. Right. Once he gets Dubbo up and going, he believes within three years he'll get to the point where it can be self-sustaining. So at the moment, he's doing fundraising for it. That's yep. really the main objective of him being in the region. But after that three-year time frame, he believes it can be self-sustaining where essentially the treatments and the money that will be utilised by the government and by pharmaceutical mm. companies basically gets to the stage where it's paying for that process. And because you can do it in a more cost-effective way, mm. when you're not just doing or giving people 
drugs that should work, you're giving people drugs that will work. Now, I'm probably going too far. Yep. You probably should go and read more information on Tim well, Johnson's it's website. It sounds like it's like targeted therapy. And, and from the start, whereby instead of, I'd suggest... Going in like the typical sort of cancer uh, treatment is with chemotherapy. You just sort of you, you you get a handful of drugs. You just get whacked by this handful of drugs, and we hope that uh, out of all of those, that some of them will start to do the trick. This seems to be a way I'd suggest where they right from the start they they do a genome running of the actual type of cancer. They work out from that specifically what type of chemotherapy drugs are going to best be effective, and then they start that from the start, I think. Is that pretty much how this sort of thing works? Yeah, that's in general terms. And again, mm. I, I should say that I, I'm not an expert on, no, well, on the processes. Both are, aren't that's, we? Right. that's right. So I'd, I'd recommend people that want mm. to know more details, don't just take my no, exactly general right. word for it. Yes. Have a look at some of the stuff that he's doing with Love Your Sister. But one of the points that he made, which I thought is absolutely relevant, is that if you live in a regional or remote area in this nation, mm. you're 20% more likely to die from cancer. Is that right? Now, that's a big number. Is that now, from lack of treatment or lack that, of facilities, resources? Lack of facilities. Or? And, I've, and I actually spoke to Samuel about this, and I did separate research several years ago when I was doing some work around trying to promote regional areas and things that are needed in regional mm. areas. And the number that I had from that research was seven People in regional areas have a life expectancy seven years less wow. than people living in metropolitan areas, purely down to the access of health facilities. Right, right. Now, one of the things that's interesting on that, the flip side of that, is that the cleaner air mm. and the better environment for you to live in, if all health facilities were the same, you would actually have a longer life expectancy in regional areas because you've got yeah, again, that cleaner yeah. air, you've got a shorter commute to work, you've got a much less stressful living environment. Mm. But unfortunately, what happens in regional areas, people say, oh, I've got this little lump, I should mm. get it checked out. Mm. Oh, it's too far to get to someone from a medical perspective, to have a look at that. Yeah. Or you visit your GP and they say, you really have some tests on that. Yeah. The, the closest place you can have those tests done is, might be, if you're out in regional areas further, it might be Dubbo or it might be in yeah. Sydney. Or you need to have ongoing treatment for that. Mm. You're going to have to go and have that treatment every day for the next six mm. weeks. Mm. Oh, we haven't got that available here in Walgut or Burke or mm. Warrena. And then some people say, I can't afford to get to treatment. I mm. can't get the transport, a whole range of areas of, of issues there. But Dubbo can serve a really important part of that whole solution because people from further west, again, those places like the Cobars, the Burks, the Breeze, etc., yeah. they can probably access Dubbo with some reasonable level of, of ease. Not always that easy, but mm. if you said you've got to go to Sydney, for some of those people there, they just it's it's not within their realms of possibility financially, yep. and even just the transportation methods that they might need to get there, they just throw their hands up in mm. the air and say, oh, "I'm not going to do that." And I had this great, or a great slash terrible conversation mm. with a, a gentleman in Burke when we were out doing tour to Oroch fundraising bike ride for Macquarie Homestay, and he had a conversation with myself and the other bike riders there, and he said, based in Burke, the diagnosis he had and the treatment that he had initially needed him to get to Dubbo for an extended period of time. He said, I simply couldn't afford the motels. I couldn't oh, afford to go to Dubbo for the length of time that I was required to do that. And I'd almost given up to the point of saying, well, I'm just going to have to die earlier. And then he heard about Macquarie Homestay. Yep. He could then come to Macquarie Homestay. He could actually afford to stay there because it's basically mostly covered by IPTAS funding, a small yep amount on top of impetus funding yeah. and he had the treatment that he needed and he spoke to this group of bike riders saying i'm here today because of previous two at o-rock rides and the money they've raised for macquarie homestay yes i wouldn't be here today if i didn't have macquarie homestay to stay at as you say a sad but a great story from the yeah, point of view of getting right. a really positive outcome so these are the sort of things and i, I talked to samuel about some of those sort mm. of stories so i think in terms of getting dubbo set up as a central point, absolutely vital. Yep. The other nice thing was we did all this at the Western Plains Cultural Centre oh. and, of course, hanging on the wall. Absolutely. Patrick There's a big Samuel picture of him right That's there, right. isn't there? Yeah. Yes. Now, he had a good story to tell about that as well. Jeremy Eden painted Samuel. Now, right. Jeremy, Jeremy Eden lost his mum to cancer. Oh, so and so a connection there, obviously. Yeah, yes. a connection there. And yep. if you look at that picture that's hanging in the Cultural Centre, and you've only got to the end of July to get along to the Cultural Centre right, to so see all the... Well, well, what are we now? Mid-July, sort of say, you've only got a couple of weeks left, if that. That's right. So mm -hmm. go on and see those. And if you look at the picture of Samuel Johnson, which won the People's Choice Prize, right, didn't yes. win the overall prize, Black Douglas won that, yeah. but the People's Choice Prize, and you see Samuel holding 
a photograph in the actual painting, mm. and that photograph is actually of Jeremy Eden's mother. Oh, so many people okay. would assume that photograph might be something, of sister. Yeah, yeah, something of significance to yeah. Samuel, but it was actually of significance to the artist. So oh, there was a nice right. linkage there. Yeah. And again, it was it was nice to hear a bit more about the story. Mm. And of course, that was painted during COVID restrictions. Mm. There was the, the problem between Sydney and Melbourne with that. So it had to be done mainly via photos. So he had one posing one oh, that was it yeah and wow. then the, the artist took lots of photos and then used those to paint from mm. rather than a live sitting each time that he was doing work on the painting so it was an interesting bit of background of that story it but it was nice to be there and, and Samuel did make the point that he'd been approached several times before to have someone paint his picture for okay. the Archibald right. but he he really wanted to make sure that whoever painted him mm. he had some sort of connection with and when he spoke to Jeremy and he looked at some of Jeremy's previous work and then the linkage with Jeremy's mum and cancer, yes, yes. he thought, this is the artist yep. to paint me. So he was really happy with the outcome, happy with the painting. And, and he made the point as well, and, and have a look at this when you go to the Cultural mm. Centre, most of the people, most of the portraits there, the people are happy. Mm. If you look at the one of Samuel Johnson, mm, Not so much so. Well, There's a uh, contemplative sort of look about it. Yeah. That's exactly the word I was going to use. I wouldn't yeah. say it was a sad look, but he certainly, you can see him deep in thought, he's contemplating, mm. and he said, Jeremy... The artist said to him, I want you to think about your sister oh, while right. I get the pose and while yeah. I take some photos of that. Yeah. And so Samuel made the point. He said, I'm sitting there thinking about my sister, which obviously is sad. And mm. it makes me sad even talking about it. He said, it makes me sad talking about it. He said, so it's a bit different to mm. the other paintings here because I'm deep in thought about mm. my sister. I'm missing my sister. Yep. And that's what I'm thinking about rather than other ones you look around. Mm. People well, I think are, the artist has done a fabulous job in capturing that as well. Yeah, and, mm. and all of those paintings there are, oh, are they're brilliant. Very special. And, I, and I love looking at those and just seeing the, the depth of talent that's there mm. in that room. And yes. you think about all the entries, over 800 entries were put in for the Archibald Prize 2022. Yep. And of those, you know, only just over 50 make it to the final stage. And... All but Amazing. one are hanging there in our cultural centre. So get along and have yeah, a look this month. Right. As you say, get down there, folks, and check it out because yeah. it's going to close very soon. And, and have a look again at Love Your Sister. Uh, I, I'm giving a bit of a plug, I suppose, but have a look at that. And if you mm. feel like you can contribute in some way, shape or form, then Simi would love to hear from you or, or love to take some sort of contribution from oh, you. Oh, that's wonderful. I think uh, it was last week or the week before on the podcast, we talked about the Benelong Bridge repairs. Now, this is the uh, bridge out there uh, on Benelong Road. I'm right in saying that. Is that right, Correct. Matt? Yep, Correct, that's right. right. Now, out there on Benelong Road. Now, this bridge um, has some structural damage done to it, and because of that, the load limit has had to have been reduced. Now, it appears as though while the new bridge is being fixed, you've managed to sort of decide as a council to maybe repair this bridge so that the load limit can then be increased again. Is this correct, Will? Yeah, basically that's it. So the the bridge had a – we had to impose a 15-tonne load limit on it. Mm. We've got a new bridge being put in. We've got the budget for that. We've got some funding for that bridge. We've done some land acquisition, some compulsory land acquisition around right. the bridge there to basically make it a better path for people to drive across the new bridge once oh, it's excellent. constructed. Good. And we've got a plan there that by April next year, April 2024, that new bridge will be up and done oh, and constructed. Well, it's pretty quick, really, when you think about it. It's a lot of planning that's gone into this stage, oh. so we didn't decide <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> I was thinking, normally these things take a bit longer than that, but that's, yeah, that's it's, really impressive. Well it's, done. It's taken a while to get to this point, but mm. when our staff were out there doing some work preparing for that, mm. they noticed that the old bridge, the existing bridge now, which doesn't look like it's in great condition, but mm. structurally it's been sound and people mm. have been using that bridge. Yeah. We had some staff look at that and looked at the fact that some of the major structural beams looked like there were some cracks in them. So mm. very quickly, they got some experts in, some engineers in to look at that, and they immediately said, you've got to reduce the load limit. You've got to reduce it down to 15 tonnes. Mm. Now, that's not great no. for all the farmers mainly in that area, but people that need to use that bridge yep. for transporting various goods. Even I had one farmer mm. talk to me about the fact that sometimes – he might walk some of the cattle from one side of that bridge to another yeah, because he's got farms on both sides of yep. the, the creek there and walking them across there. Now, if you've got a 15-tonne load limit... It's probably only 15 cattle. Well, they're not quite that heavy, but... That's <laughs> no, probably you, true, actually. You, You're right. You, they're probably about 300 k's each, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, three or 400, but you yeah. probably get to the stage where you might end up with, say, 30 or 40 cows going mm. across that bridge, mm, yeah. suddenly you've hit the load limit. So yes, yes. you've got to count them off. Okay, we've hit a certain number. Right, mm. now just wait till they're off and then we can move some more on there. Mm. 
things like that. How do you control that with cattle? Oh, That'd be that's fun. exactly right. Mm-hmm. But there was certainly an incredible cost that people in that area have said to me, an incredible cost to mm. them mm. for having to go around the detour. In, and this is more once harvest season hits. Yeah. And so some of them even said to me, if there's repairs that aren't going to be too expensive, mm. we'll even contribute if you need, which I think was a very yeah, right. generous offer yep, from some yep. of those so farmers. So that's how important this bridge is to the people in that area there. Correct. Now, yeah. we didn't just put a load limit on a 15 tonne and say, that's it, bad luck, we'll just move mm. on. As part of that process, we did say, load limit immediately. And the example I've given is I compare it to when you're at the airport, mm. you're about to catch a flight, and then the announcement comes over and says the pilots have done an inspection and they've got a safety concern about the plane, mm. so we're not going to fly yet. Not too many people storm the counter mm. and say, I don't care about the safety issue, I don't care about the light being I on. I get to Sydney. That's right, I want to get down there straight <laughs> away. Right. Fly regardless. Yeah, yeah. People get a bit annoyed or frustrated or disappointed, but they don't say, let's mm. just fly anyway. Yeah, that's they right. They respect the safety side of Absolutely. it. And that was the conversation I had with farmers out around the area. Mm. They respected the safety. I don't want to be the mayor of a council that says, ah, she'll be right, mate. Mm. And then we have someone in their truck or their header or whatever it might be at the bottom of that creek yep. knowing that, well, we knew about that. We mm. could have stopped it, but ah, it'll be right. But Well, actually, look, you're spot on there. And in regards to that, so from a council's perspective, uh, what sort of money are we talking here just for the repairs? Well, that was the first thing we had to do. We had to find out how much. Yep. We've identified an issue. We've immediately put a 15-tonne load limit on it. Mm. Then we've said okay, now we need some engineers to have a look at this to see if we're going to do some repairs on that, what would it cost us and how quickly could we do it, mm. keeping in mind that by April next year, we'll have a new bridge in mm. place. Mm. So if they came back and said, you needed to spend a million dollars on it, yeah. we'd say, well, hold on, I don't think we should be spending a million dollars on that. Mm. We've got some money we're spending on a new bridge. Maybe that's more important to spend that kind of money on. Yep. So get us an idea of a price and get us an idea of a time frame so mm. we can actually make a decision on that. Yep. So we had the engineers come back to us very quickly, which I was very impressed with, mm. and they said it's going to cost you $119,000 to okay. repair that, yep. and we can get it done by the middle of September, okay. which gets it done in a short enough time frame yep. that we think obviously will help out farmers around yep. that harvest time. So we basically that seems said, like a pretty reasonable outcome to me personally. Well, again, I'd prefer not to spend $119,000, but I also understand the importance of that. Yeah. And we haven't gone back to the farmers in that area and said, okay, everyone cough up ten grand and then we'll go ahead with it. Yep. We've said, no, we think this is an important enough piece of council infrastructure. We th- This is part of our infrastructure. This yep. isn't a part of infrastructure that's controlled by the state government, for example, or owned by the state government. We as a council own this, so we'll own the problem. Yep. $119,000, we'll go ahead and get that repair done. So once that uh, repair is done, the load limit will be able to go back to its normal load limit? Yeah, that's right. 44 okay. tonnes is the typical load limit of yep. most bridges you see in, in a, a local road network, yep. and that's the, the load limit that people expect for mm. loading up their various vehicles. So... When that repair is done, yep. by the middle of September, that'll be back to the 44 tonne well, That'd limit. be great because harvest normally comes up around November, December and things like that as well. So. That's right. So, And it's it's not too bad a time frame mm. in terms of where we yeah. are now. It's really two months or a little bit less than two months, which seems fairly reasonable for a fairly major construction. Mm. One of the things that's interesting is probably the longest part of that is actually getting the timbers, the actual materials that we oh, need to do okay. the repair. Yep. The actual repair job will take less time than the sourcing the materials, the materials. Yeah. Oh, yeah. which is a bit of an indication of what we see. Well, I think across the building industry in general, isn't Correct. it, right yeah, now? That's exactly it, yeah. right, yeah. Now, Matt, I noticed uh, here that uh, during the week that you're involved in a community safety workshop. Now, is this, uh, is this in response to a lot of the talk in regards to um, uh, what has been, I suppose, just general crime in town? Is this uh, a way that uh, council is looking at maybe addressing this as an issue? Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> to make it clear for you. <laughs> we have had some discussion at council, obviously, about crime in the community. And the frustrating yep. part for us is that the two issues that people talk to me about in relation mm. to crime is policing. Mm-hmm. Well, for a start, I actually think the police do a fantastic job. Yes. But we don't control them. We are in no way, shape or form in control of policing. I've said it to you before. Yes. Tim Chin, the commander for this area at the moment... If I walked into his office and said, Tim, I need you to go and send some police down this area, he'd say, who are you? Now, yeah, that's right. He's a gentleman. He wouldn't 
be rude to me, I'm yeah. sure, but he would it's say... It's not your jurisdiction to fall and make those comments anyway. That's that's exactly the point. He doesn't answer to council, doesn't answer to me. He answers to the state government. Mm. And if the Minister for Police said, do something, I'm sure Tim would respond to that. Mm. The second part that people tell me is that we need the sentencing laws stronger. We need to lock up these people that are doing this sort of stuff. Now, there's a whole range of argument about whether locking people up is effective. Mm. I don't want to get into that particular mm. debate and discussion. But again... Council doesn't set sentencing laws. Mm. The state government decides what the penalties are for various crimes. Now, people also tell me that the magistrates are too soft, and again, that's a whole other argument I don't want to enter into. Mm. But the whole idea of telling magistrates how to go about their sentencing, the magistrates are designed very specifically to be independent, Mm. and so even the state government doesn't start to tell the magistrates what to do. The whole independence of the magistrates is very important to our legal system. So we don't control any of that. Now, you may remember there was a a concept or a discussion brought forward to council for a resolution about holding a crime summit. I do remember it, yes. And so councillors debated that topic, Mm. and as a result of that, councillors decided not to go ahead with the crime summit. We didn't think that would be good in terms of solving the problems because we don't get the chance to use any of our powers to actually solve any of the problems. And all it seemed like it was going to do was to advertise to the world that, hey, we've got crime in Dubbo. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've got crime in all across the state. Yep, yep. We'll talk about that soon, actually, as well. There's some other things we can talk about with that, yes. Yeah, and so we don't think it's – well, councillors made a decision – not to go ahead with any sort of crime summit because it seemed like it would be advertising that our problem is particularly worse than anywhere else in the state, which I don't think it is. And when you look at some of the latest crime data, which we've talked about before, again, you just look at that rolling 12-month and the change in the first quarter of this year. I quoted some of these figures before. For example, motor vehicle theft, which people often talk about, across the entire state went up by 4.6% across the Dubbo Regional Council, LGA, it went up by 0.3%. So it still went up, mm. but across the state, it mm. went up a lot worse. Yep. Um, break and anti-renewal dwelling, for example, went up by 1.2% across the state, went down by 6.5% yep. in the Dubbo Regional Council area. Yep. Uh, sexual assault went up by 0.6% in the state, down by 16.3% in mm. the Dubbo Regional Council area. Again, this isn't saying there's no crime in Dubbo, no. but our police and the processes that are in place are aware of this. They're taking action and I think they're having a fairly reasonable effect on it. I'd love to see zero crime, absolutely. absolutely. But I also live in the real world and realise <coughs> there's going to be crime. Now, Matt, look, one of the things I want to talk to you about too in regards to, the, in regards to crime is that uh, across some sectors, sections of our community, look, you have been accused of the fact that you're literally burying your head in the sand over crime in Dubbo. So what, what's your response to that? One of the things that's really important, I think, is to know the powers that you have, no matter what your job is, whether you're a school teacher or whether you're a mayor or whether you're a state government representative, knowing what your powers are. One of the things that I've often said is, yes, we've got crime in Dubbo, obviously. And again, I've said you've got crime across the state. Do I feel unsafe walking down the main street in Dubbo if I have to go down to a supermarket at night time and walk into a supermarket? I don't feel unsafe at all. There are certain parts of the state that I would feel unsafe, but I don't feel unsafe in Dubbo, and I think the police and the sentencing processes we have in place are working. Would I like to see them work better? Absolutely right. There is crime, but I don't think it's of value to anyone at all in this council area, and I'm the mayor of this council mm. area. I don't think there's any value and of any help to anyone in this council area for me to be jumping up and down, whether it be on national media, whether it be in local media or anywhere, saying Dubbo is terrible for crime. Everyone stay away from Dubbo because crime is terrible. There is crime everywhere. I don't want to drive people away from coming to Dubbo. I don't feel like having tourists come to Dubbo is suddenly putting their lives at risk Mm. no more than if they go to anywhere else in the state Mm. and they go and park their car and walk into a supermarket or do whatever they might do. So I've never said there's no crime. What I have said is that the crime that we've got doesn't make most people feel unsafe and the crime that we've got, you've got the correct authorities that are working on that. Now, what can we do as a council Mm. about that? Well, what we came up with from that last resolution where there was an attempt to hold a crime summit, which again, mm. I think would be wrong for a whole range of reasons and council resolved that way. What we did say is we'll look at some community safety processes. What can we do to make our community safer and feel safer? And so one of the outcomes from that was to hold some workshops. Right. And we held the first of those workshops this week. That workshop was held with the police and with councillors and some of our council staff. And really that was just a discussion around 
some of the general feeling about how we feel in the community and what we can feel about crime and what we would like to see with crime. Now, there were issues that came up in that discussion. Yep. Parental control was one of the issues that came up. Mm. What can we do as a council? And, and one mm. of the councillors in that discussion said some of these issues are obviously big picture, mm. multi-generational, intergenerational issues. How are we going to solve that as a council? We just simply don't have the power. The best we can do is get some groups together. Now, there's two more workshops to come in this series that we've created from that Yep. resolution. Yep. And again, the first one started off with, with the police and with councillors. The next two will involve other organisations, broader organisations. Yep. If the best we can do, and it probably is about the best we can do, is to get some of these different agencies, some of them are government agencies, some of them are non-government agencies, but get some of these agencies that have got the responsibility to do something about crime. If we can get them together, if council can help them come to the table and discuss things, then I think we've achieved something well, this, this is probably one of the things I suggest that, um, that, again, probably members of the community will probably turn around and say, well, you're the mayor. Uh, can't you jump up and down enough and, and, and shout loud enough to state governments and authorities who are involved in, uh, in you know, the, the resolution of crime around the place? Can't you do something about that? People also tell me that they don't like the fact that their home loan repayments are going up because the interest rates are going up. Can you fix that problem for us as well? Well, no. Philip Lowe is probably not going to listen to a mayor of Dubbo saying, can you put the interest rates down, please, Philip, because our residents are suffering. There's a whole range of areas of responsibility that are way outside the control of council. Mm. We can send off letters. We can have discussions with various ministers, and we do that. As a council, we do have those discussions. We do send letters off. But again, we can't make it happen. That's the critical thing here. We can have those discussions. We do. I meet with the police. We have a, a regular scheduled meeting with the police, and I sit down with the police, and we sit down and have that discussion. I'm not telling them anything new. Yeah. If I say, hey, Tim, some people out there are concerned about crime. Tim doesn't say, what? Really? I wasn't aware of that. Tim knows the Boxar stats yep. way better than I do. I look at the Boxar stats and I look at the crime and I look at how it compares, and I've just quoted some stats before that are straight from Boxar, but... Tim knows those better than I do. The police know those better than I do. Yep. The sentencing processes, the magistrates, the state government, they know those figures inside and out, upside down. They create those stats. Boxar, Bureau of Crime, Statistics and Research, is a government department, a mm. state government department. So I can't tell anyone anything new. Yep. I'm not going to be able to have some revelation suddenly. And I, sometimes people will say to me, what are you doing about crime? And I say, well... I, I don't control any of it. What would you like me mm. to do? What, tell me your idea. What What do you think as a council and, and as a mayor, we've talked about this before, mm. I don't have any power at all. The only power I have is to be the spokesperson and represent council decisions. So you've got 10 councillors there. What would you like a resolution of council to do to direct someone to do? Well, go and tell them to make sentencing tougher. Well, we could... Well, we couldn't actually do it. It would be a, a resolution that would make no sense. But let's say mm. we had a resolution of council to say, toughen up sentencing. We can't make anyone do that. We could have a resolution that says, we'd like sentencing to be tougher. But the state government doesn't have to listen to that. We don't control the state government. So this is the thing. You've got to make sure that you're working on things that you can control. Can ben you do things like then, uh, I don't know, maybe go and sort of say, we want more police here in town? Certainly. We can make that representation. And I've sent off letters to the police minister, for example, to say, we want more policing in Wellington. We want 24-hour policing presence in Wellington. And we sent off that letter, and we get a polite letter back from the minister that says, thanks very much for your letter, duly noted. Again, mm. do we make things happen with those? Probably not. Again, the best we can do is represent those things. Now, the thing is, what you've got to be careful of is, mm. I've talked about Bellalong Bridge. Mm. We do control that. We've got to make sure that the things that are under our control, the things that we do control... If we get too distracted by all these other things that people say, well, why don't you go and chase that up? Then the things that we can control, potholes or mm. roads or collecting rubbish bin, those things, we lose sight of what we should be doing. Mm. And take a, a football team, for example, where you're saying to the forwards, your job is to take the ball up the middle and then we've got the backs there ready to score tries when we spin it out through the back mm. line. If suddenly all the, the forwards are out in the back line getting in the road, you're not doing your job. You, The coach gave you a job. Your job is to go and take the ball up the middle. Mm. 
then leave it for the backs to go and do their job. And it's a bit the same as this. You've got to make sure that you know what your job is. Yep. We've got a local government act that says fairly clearly, there's some ambiguous areas in there, but fairly clearly what our responsibilities are. At no stage in the local government act does it say we control the police, mm. or we control sentencing. Mm. Sure, we can represent our community and sending off a letter or having a conversation with various ministers is about as far as we go. But again, they know about these things mm. already. They're, they're in that position for a reason. They haven't got their head buried in the sand. And the same as if I rang a minister and said, now look, can you come out here and make sure that our bin is collected each morning on time? Why am I doing that? That's not my job. My job is to focus on this area. Yep. So again, you've really got to know what your job is, what your position is. So, so if we go back then to the community safety workshop, and, and you had the first one there during the week, what external agencies are involved in this workshop that from the community perspective they can feel as though that there, there are people coming into this workshop that could maybe make a difference? So the first one only had the police as the only external agency. Are there any others coming in on this? Or? Th that was, again, the design of that first one. And then as we go forward to the other workshops and our staff are organising these, mm. they'll bring in other groups. So they'll bring in the Department of uh, Communities and Justice, for example. So there's another department that will come in, along with the police, I imagine. You might get juvenile justice involved. Yeah. You might get someone that is involved in sentencing processes. You might get some people who are non-government agencies working on some of the homeless issues that we might have in the yeah. region, for example. So you get a variety of agencies. And I can't rattle off to you yeah. all the agencies, but getting them in the one room together, sometimes that might be where a council can make a positive difference because different agencies might be working on their little patch yep. and not really looking across the way to see what someone else is doing. One thing that we may have identified already is that a lot of these agencies, both government and non-government agencies, they might work during business hours largely because their staff are working during business hours. So we might be over-serviced during the day, but then at night time might be under-serviced. Mm. Is there mm. some way we can help address that problem, for example? Yep. But again, we wouldn't be the ones addressing it. We simply don't have the budget or the power to go and address it. Yep. The best we can do is to get different groups talking. But again, mm. it's a bit insulting to say to these groups, council, we'll come along and we'll fix the problem for you. They're mm. all doing their work. And I think yep. in the and main... I'm sure they're all aware of the fact that if there's, if there's problems in an area, that they would know about it. That's right. And in the main, I think they all do a really good job. Whenever yeah. I've talked to any of those individual groups and those individual departments or organisations, I think, yeah, they're doing a really good job. Now, are they solving the problems that people would like to have them solve today? Probably not. And there's a whole range of reasons. And again, mm. some of these problems we've got have been built up over multi-generations of issues. It's pretty hard to expect or even maybe a bit simplistic to expect that you click your fingers mm. and suddenly you've got a solution to all of these problems. So... These are tough problems. We've got government departments working on these tough problems. Council can't really solve these problems. And I suppose that's the point I make. We've got enough to do in the things that we've been tasked to do. Mm. And, and again, if I use your example at school, if someone said, Mark, I don't think the syllabus is right for Year 12 English. Can you go and fix that problem? But also make mm. sure you keep teaching your kids, your current classroom of kids, the exact syllabus we've got now because we've got a HSC coming up, yep. but just go and change the syllabus as well. Well, it's not just a little job for you as a teacher to go along and change the syllabus. It's a whole big process that's got lots of people working on the syllabus on a constant basis to make sure it's relevant, up to date, new texts might be coming in, all sorts of things. Gee, how do I solve that problem? Mm. There might be a parent who says, Mark, go and solve that problem for me. It's not really that easy for you to solve the problem. And meanwhile, while you're trying to solve that problem, mm. you're ignoring your current students. Mm. You've got a job to do and make sure those students are educated and do a fantastic job, which you do a great job at. Yeah. Again, you've, you can't do everything, I suppose. You've got to make sure you, you comply with what you've got to do. So as a final message then in, in regards to this, uh, to the residents of Dubbo, uh, and as, as the mayor speaking out in regards to uh, their fears and concerns about crime in town, what, what would you say? I still go back to the data. I look at the data and I still say that, yes, we have crime in Dubbo. Yes, we have crime in Orange, in Bathurst, in Wellington. We have crime across the state. Do I feel unsafe walking down the street in Dubbo? Not necessarily. I feel like I'm okay in Dubbo. It doesn't feel like, I mean, in Sydney, we see people walk out of a gym in the morning and someone's being gunned down beside them. I don't see that happening in Dubbo. Mm. 
the last 12 months, and when you look at the data that compares that rolling data, for example, that I talked about before, when I look at that and I look at one of the stats which says murders, well, in Dubbo, it says NA, not applicable. We don't have murders in Dubbo. Across the state, it's actually gone down by 17%, which is mm. good as well. Yep. But again, there was that issue in the paper, and I don't want to pick on any other areas. I've got other mayors that I speak to from other areas yes. on a regular basis, yes. but there was that issue that popped up, and one of the newspapers had a wild night of crime across Orange, Bathurst, Molong, and Carcourt. Yes, Karkor. I saw that, and it was on the news there uh, the other night as well. It opened up with uh, an issue there of, of six guys that they caught on a video camera breaking into a house in Bathurst, and on the same night there were uh, burnout cars in Orange. Same night they had burnout cars in Molong. So th- this seems to be, from what I can gather, the, the same issues which people are raising here in Dubbo and not just here. They're all over the place, and particularly around the Central West right now, we're seeing this. And you've got to be careful that you don't try and make Dubbo look worse than everywhere else. So mm. there is crime, and again, we've seen some of those reports in other areas. Yep. You don't want to make Dubbo look like it's worse because you do get that reputation then, and that harms tourism, that harms people moving to your community, that harms your entire reputation, and it can take a long time for a negative perception to be eradicated. Now, way back in 2005, we had issues with the Gordon Estate, the old Gordon Estate, which doesn't exist anymore. Riots was the word, that's right. Now, I I was on council at the time, I wasn't the mayor at the time, but hearing people, I had friends of mine ringing from Sydney saying, mate, are you okay? You've got riots out there. Well, they weren't riots. Sure, they burnt out a police car in Gordon Estate. That's not good. Hmm. But riots mean riots. I imagine that people are marching down the main street of Dubbo with pitchforks and with burning fires and effigies and maybe the national flag being burnt. I didn't really know what was going on in Gordon Estate when I walked down the main street of Dubbo. So it wasn't riots throughout Dubbo. But again, it took a long time for us to get past that. The last thing that I want to do as mayor of this community is leave a reputation for some terrible crime spree. Now, again, I'm not having a go at the mayor of the day. Alan Smith was mayor at the time. I'm not saying it was his fault that riots were being reported. But I'll do everything I can to protect a good reputation in Dubbo. That doesn't mean burying your head in the sand. That means taking the appropriate action and also understanding my powers. That's a really important thing. Don't think you're more powerful than you really are, even to the point where people say, what are you doing about it, about anything? It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's Bellong Bridge or whatever it might be. One of the things that I've said many times is that a mayor is largely powerless. Mm. A mayor is representative of decisions of council. And I represent those decisions of council, and I take that very seriously, Mm. that I don't go off willy-nilly and quote a whole range of things. I mean, the 3D printer tour has been an interesting one. Uh, Mm. I did... You know, people talked about that and said, oh, this is a great little project of yours. I said, well, it's not a project of mine. Mm. It was brought to council. Matt Wright, as a councillor, brought yep. it to council as a notice of motion. And then council discussed it, debated it. And then we resolved as a council mm. that, yes, we would go forward with a 3D printer toilet. So it wasn't my little pet project or my little thing that I wanted to do. It was a good, sensible process that I fully Which supported. Which you promoted and this sort of stuff in a positive way. And that's part of my job. Yeah. If you look at the roles of the mayor, it's to be the spokesperson for council resolutions, for council mm. decisions. Mm. Further than that, then when we put that out to tender, a tender came back. Now, if councillors didn't like the idea of a 3D printed toilet, when we got the tenders, councillors could have said, no, we've changed our mind. We don't want to go ahead with this now. We accept no tenders and go back to a traditional method of construction. So councillors have actually voted on it twice mm. to go ahead with a 3D printed toilet. And again, I think it's a great project, but I'm that's my official position because yeah. I'm the spokesperson for council. So even if I thought it was terrible, yes. I would have to by virtue of the Local Government Act 993, I would have to say what a great project it was. So mm. I'm, I'm, my hands are tied to a certain extent. Yep. That's my job as the mayor. I accept that job as mayor, and I'm happy to keep doing that. But again, it's, it's ridiculous for anyone to think that the mayor's got this unlimited power to do whatever the mayor, he or she, wants to do in a community. Yep. The mayor is bound by what the council decisions are. Mm. Now, speaking of voice and, uh, and where things work within uh, what our capabilities are, there's obviously a big referendum vote coming up very soon on The Voice. Now, we don't have to go back into the, the details in regards to what this is all about. We only have to watch the news in the morning and at night. There's plenty of talk about The Voice. But from local council perspective, do we have a role to play here? It's a really interesting one, actually. Some councils across the nation, and I've talked to some of the, the mayors and councils at some of these councils, have taken a formal position. 
I haven't actually heard of any council that's taken a formal position of saying we encourage our residents to vote no in the referendum. Certainly I've come across some that have encouraged the residents to vote yes. So they've got a formal position on council to vote yes. Now we've discussed this at council and we've got a, a formal resolution that we've come up with, which mm. is a bit different to that. One of the issues that we certainly discussed at council was we don't think it's council's position to tell you how to vote. Mm. We don't do it for a state election. We don't do it for a federal election. Certainly don't do it for local government elections. Yep. Yep. Why would we tell people when it's a referendum mm. where in the secrecy of your polling booth, you tick a box beside a yes or a no. That's our whole democracy is based on the fact that it's a secret ballot. You yes. don't have people with guns. You don't have people unfairly or unduly influencing a vote. Why would a council go and start directing an entire community to vote in one way or the other? So we very deliberately said that's not our role to play. But we've got a resolution of council that says we think we've got a role to play in education. Right. And we've okay. worked through that process. We've done a workshop on that already. We've talked about how does that play out? What does that look like? What sort of education? How do we help that? Because the Australian Electoral Commission will be doing some of that. And there'll be various national campaigns that we'll see for yes and for no. So there'll be people out there. But we think at a local level, we can still play a role. So there. how's that going to look like from the point of view of council with educating people on The Voice? I don't know. Okay. And, <laughs> and I haven't got a resolution to back me up on this. All I've yep. got is a resolution that says we will look at some things, we'll look at a workshop, and we'll come forward. There'll be a report that will go to council, and council will debate that at a council yep. meeting, and we'll formally resolve exactly what it might look like. Now, might it look like just some social media posts? Might mm. we do some advertising, pay some money for some advertising on making sure you find out the information. Might we run a panel, for example, where we have a couple of people for the yes and a couple of people for the no and have a mm. public meeting where people can hear about that. Yep. All sorts of options okay. we've talked about, but I've got no formal resolution to go forward with mm. at this stage yet, but we will have that. The greatest frustration that I have personally, this isn't a formal council mm. position, but personally, is I'd like to know a date. Mm. It's between October and December, which sounds like November because it's the only month that falls between yes, October yes, yes. and December. Maybe second or third weekend is November, in November mm. is kind of the date that's been talked about. Mm. But when we want to talk about, there's a big vote coming up, an incredibly important vote for our nation coming up mm. on sometime in the future That's right, yes. It'd yes. be nice to have that definite date because I think that makes it easier. One of the things we've talked about in our workshops is really getting to the point where we tell people to register to vote. Yes. We've had people die in world wars to protect our democracy. Yep. Make sure that you honour the sacrifice mm. people have made and actually register to vote and actually go and vote. Mm. So that'll be part, I imagine, of our education program. So potentially program. more of the, the, the practical elements surrounding, surrounding the, the referendum itself. The practical elements, the but also how it giving... Works and things like that. Yeah, but also giving some people some pointers about here are the arguments yeah. on the yes side, here are the arguments on the no side. Make sure you do your research. Yes. We certainly, from our resolution of council at this stage, we certainly won't be directing people for a yes or a no. We'll certainly be saying... Well, you are representatives of all people, aren't you? Correct. That's right. And we'll be saying, make sure you do your research, make sure you educate yourself, mm. and make sure you enrol to vote. Mm. They're the sort of things. What that will look like I'll be able to tell you once we've got a resolution okay. exactly what that looks yep. like. But there's a whole range of different options in terms yeah. of how that might look. Okay. Now, I'm sure at some point in time in my driving career, I've probably done this. I'd like to say I haven't, but chances are I probably have. Um, and that is in regards to, uh, well, let's just say parking in bus zones in the CBD. Um, I try to avoid it, like everybody, do the right thing. You know, I don't necessarily want to get fined for parking in the wrong place. Uh, I'd much prefer to simply just go down and go about my business. But is this becoming more of a problem where people are parking in bus zones in the CBD? It's becoming enough of a problem that we actually put out a media release about it during the week. Just yeah, right. to say, have a look on the sign. Now, the bus zones in our CBD are typically applicable mm. from 7am to 9.30pm Monday to Friday and then 7am to 6.30pm on Saturdays. Mm -mm. Now, I've driven down past the Fanadabo Square, for example, yep. and I've sometimes seen people park there and I'm thinking to myself, it's not 9.30, I'm sure mm. they shouldn't be parked there, but people do park there because yep. they think, oh, it's at night time. No so 7am to 9.30pm. Yeah, so Monday So basically Friday. may as well say the whole day. <clears throat> Just about, given yeah. the fact that Coles now closed at 9, Yes, you wonder why you'd be going there and park there after 9.30 yep. to go into Coles, for example. Yep. The other one I've seen 
regularly, this goes back for many years now, is that along that spot, and this is one particular spot right in front of Dubbo Square, mm. it's parallel parking for one section there where the bus stop is. Yep. Often I do see people when they do park late at night or on Sundays, for example, they'll park 45 degree angle parking. Which doesn't work really well around there because that's a pretty tight little squeeze through there. Correct. And it, you, it means you're, the back of your car sticks out a little bit on mm. the road. But again, people see further down the road, angle parking. So, oh, well, I'll just park angle parking. It must be that. Mm. Again, knowing the road rules and checking signs is all very important. One of the, the issues is that we don't have our parking officers out at night time paroling, but police can park, it can find you there as well. Okay. So yep. that's one issue. Yep. The bus, and I have seen buses try and stop there, which holds up some traffic to let people on the bus, even though there are some cars parked mm. there. So I'm sure it's not great for the bus driver. No, they the would safety see that element as, as well, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, they'd see that as dangerous. We might have to, and certainly we haven't said that we do this, but we might have to ask our staff occasion to go along at night time and find a few people there. Yep. And it's not cheap. $283 you can yeah, get right. fined down there if you're parking in there outside or inside the times that you shouldn't be parking yeah, there. Okay. So it's certainly something that, I suppose we'd want to highlight two hundred eighty-three dollars better spent at one of the shops in town. Exactly right. Yeah, a whole range of ways you'd spend that <laughs> better absolutely. than giving it to council. So just be aware of that. Make sure you you know about those bus zones and yep. just check the signs. I suppose yeah. is the important thing. If you do park there, just have a look. Oh, wait up! I shouldn't be parked here. Jump in your car and well, I think you've just pretty much nailed it from the point of view. Just remember, folks, seven a.m. to nine thirty p.m. You may as well say for the entire day. That bus zone is a bus zone. Don't Monday to Friday. Monday, Monday to Friday. Friday. That, I'm talking weekend's the, a little bit different. I'm talking about the Dubbo CBD. So it's not just that one at Dubbo Square, but that's yep. one I see yep. regularly. But that's in the Dubbo CBD. Yeah. Willis Lane, there's been a bit of work going on up there. Um, seems to be progressing pretty well. Uh, drove past there the other day and it's, it's looking very impressive. Are, are we in front of time? You're going to hear me say something that people don't normally mm. associate with council yes and you are right we are ahead of schedule hey how good's that <laughs> there it is now we did talk about it before the fact that we would be expecting that to be finished sometime around the end of september right yes. but again sometimes it's outside our control the weather's been good to us yeah. things have been progressing quite well we're looking at the moment that we should have this project finished Probably by the end of August. Oh, so some, that's, that's, somewhere around it's impressive. A month. There's only four weeks difference there. Yeah, that's right. Somewhere around a month in advance of schedule. Yeah. Now you will see next week some traffic opening up there, maybe towards the end of next week. Okay. Again, there'll still be openings and closings at various points. Mm. You'll see some new bitumen laid down there, and that surface for that section should be similar to the new boundary road extension, where right. people obviously are pretty happy with that particular yep. road there. It's done very well up there. Yep. So that's all good. But you still will see some closures there because there'll be some line mm. markings. So it might open and close a bit over the next month and a half. But mm. by the end of August, all those works there should finish. And it's a long detour mm. when you've got to go right up to Sheraton Road yes. to get around that particular yes, section right. there. So I've heard people talk about the fact that they think about their trip and I've got to go down through mm. there. And it made it worse during the week. And it wasn't our staff doing this work, but there was some work being done on the railway crossing on Fitzroy Street. Yep. So people uh, were thinking... worse. <laughs> well, people were thinking, I'll go around that, and there was yep. one of the boom gates that was being worked on down there. Oh, I'll fix up. I won't go down Fitzroy Street. I'll just duck up and go along. <laughs> oh, hold on, there's more robots there. <laughs> I've had to go all the way up to Sheraton Road, is what oh, some people man. told me. So it was a big detour Absolutely. to try and avoid some of that traffic there. But going ahead of schedule, well done to our staff. Yes. Keep up the great work. Great job. Now, regards to the next little one, Matt, uh, about a uh, community information day around the Wellington area. Now, this is about the renewable energy zone. So I know we've talked about this a fair bit on uh, on our podcast. This is a, a zone, it's an area around Wellington where there's so much activity happening. So does it sound like to me, reading through this, that Council's going to be running a, a bit of an open day, a bit of a community day to, to find out more about what's actually going on in this renewable energy zone? It's a bit confusing for people because we talk about the renewable energy zone, mm. and people see wind turbines, they see solar farms down around the Bedenga area next yes. to Wellington, and people often tell me, oh, that renewable energy zone looks great. Mm. Well, and I'm being a little bit pedantic here, but that's actually not part of the renewable energy zone. The renewable energy zone, and this is the Central West Arana renewable right. energy zone, yep. refers specifically to projects that will connect to the new Energy Co transmission lines, which 
haven't been constructed yet. Oh, so okay. all so, of right. that work that's being yep. already completed down there, and more work that's going ahead. Light Source BP is building a new 400 megawatt solar farm. Yep. There's a new wind farm that's going ahead that'll have over 100 turbines in it. Mm. All of that at this stage that you've seen down there is not part of the res. Some of the, the new projects will be part of the right, res. Right. We actually thought it might make sense for us as a council to hold some information days, some information sessions, yep. maybe in Wellington, maybe around the villages. We haven't actually nutted it out yet okay. in full detail, but I thought it'd be worth mentioning just to let people know that it's things are up, happening. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And we want to make sure the community's educated, informed. I think it's really exciting. Mm. Our council thinks there are a huge number of opportunities. And I attended a community reference group meeting of the Central West Iran Renewable Energy Zone during the week. It's quite a tongue-tied <laughs> event of a word, isn't it? <laughs> isn't and one of the things that we heard at that particular meeting was very mm. exciting, mm. I thought. Not everyone in the room was as excited as I was, but we've heard discussions in the past about our res mm. being a three-gigawatt res. Yep. It was announced, I'm not sure if announced is the right word, we, we were informed at this particular CRG meeting during the week that already that res will go from three gigawatts to four and a half gigawatts right. by around 2028, and the plan will be to go to a six gigawatt res. Double the size. Double the size. Wow. Now, again, some people in the room were concerned, some people who don't like the idea of renewable energy, but mm. I was excited because what that means for us mm. is that there'll be twice as many projects in our res, which yep. means... We'll have more construction, yes. more money injected into our economy. Overall, yep. a very exciting announcement. More opportunities I thought. for those community funds and things like that, as you're saying All as of well. that. Yep. All of those things there. Yeah. That will be done with the same size transmission lines, the transmission lines that have been planned. They don't need to expand those mm. and make those larger at this mm. stage. So all very exciting. But keep an eye out or an ear out. We'll get to the point where we'll do some information days. We'll talk about some of those. We'll make some uh, announcements around some dates. But I just think it's important that the community fully understands what's happening around there because, again, some people are scared about it if they don't know about it. Yes. If they're fully informed, they can yes. make a more informed decision whether to be scared or excited. And, again, yes. I'm in the excited camp. <laughs> Yeovil, the great little town of Yeovil. Now, one thing I uh, didn't realise, Matt, was the fact that um, part of Yeovil, or at least North Yeovil, falls under the realm of our wonderful area of the Dubbo Regional Council. Is this about to change? Well, not about to change, but we hope will change oh, in okay. the near future. Right. So this is potentially started, a change. That's right. We've started some discussions. You've got Buck and Bar Creek that goes along Buck and Bar. Buck and Bar Creek. Just don't say that too quickly. That's right. There's one there's <laughs> creek that goes along and cuts off a bit of North Yeovil. And right. that was the old boundary between Cabon Shire and Wellington Shire Council. Right. With the amalgamation, and I do remember having a conversation with Mike Baird about this one day, I, yeah. I said, maybe with the amalgamations, this is the amalgamation proposed back in, or that occurred in 2016, mm. I said, there might be some support in some areas across the state, Mike, when he was the Premier, mm. that you might have some people who think that changing some boundaries of council areas mm. would make sense. And Mike told me that all they're going to do, if they did amalgamations at all, which obviously they did, mm. was to join some councils together. It was a whole other process to change boundaries. Mm. Uh, not a great outcome for Dubbo at the time yep. and, and Wellington at the time. Both both areas disagree with it, but we've got what we've got now. But one of the things that's interesting, and I did go to a public meeting in Yeovil. In fact, Richard Ivey, the deputy mayor, mm. came along with me there and we talked to Yeovil residents there. They've got some things that they want to see happen in North Yeovil under the regional council's mm. responsibility. Yes. And the other there is they want to see change in Yeovil, which is under Cabonshire. And it's just confusing for the residents there. Mm. They don't really care what yeah. happens. One of the things that we talked about on that particular day, which was one of those classic little bits of frustration, is that when we have things where we've got to do maintenance work, mowing the sides of the road, for example, mm. doing work in North Yeovil. So you get to the creek line, you've got to stop. Well, we've got teams that we send out from Wellington to go out and do maintenance work there. Across the creek, you've got Cabonshire doing that work. Someone suggested, could we just pay Cabonshire yeah. to do that? And I said, well, that's yeah. a great idea, and we've actually started some discussions around yep. that. Yep. But it would make more sense that North Yeovil it was makes, part of... I was going to say, you know, it makes even more sense to just combine the two together and make it under one jurisdiction, so to speak. Absolutely right. So the CEO from Dubbo and the general manager from Cabon have already had some okay. discussions. I'll now send a formal letter off 
to the mayor to say we think it would make sense to have a boundary adjustment exactly where that is we'll work that out but let's yep. just start the discussions at the first point yep. and get to some agreement that generally that would be good for both mm. communities it would make a lot more sense for you know, one of these Europe. days on our podcast I'd like to talk to you about how these boundaries were originally formed in the first place mm. now, that, that could be a little history lesson for everyone out there because I'd like to know as well that'd be a whole podcast it I would think. be a whole, probably a four <laughs> or five podcasts probably right <laughs> so we'll start those discussions it is interesting though and we're not trying to be harsh on Kabon. They're trying to be harsh on us. It's just mm. one of those things that makes sense. It probably makes sense down, if we go further around Eucarina, some of those areas around there as well. Mm. But let's just start with this one. It just seems silly that you've got a town like Yeovil that's mm. cut not through the middle. It's, it's more on the Kabon side than on the Dubbo side, but yeah. it's cut by a creek, and that means that you've got some part in Dubbo and some part in Kabon. It seems like we so, could probably fix that problem. Uh, so it sounds like a Monty Python episode. I mean, in regards to this one, uh, Matt, uh, actually quite excited about this because uh, I only organised tickets this the other day. Death of a Salesman, one of my favourite plays of all time, the great Arthur Miller classic. Now, there is a performance of this coming to Dubbo, to the DRTCC. Oh, look, I, I don't know about you, Matt, but I absolutely love this play, and uh, this is a little chance I'd suggest just to plug the DRTCC and some of the things that are coming up there over the next month or so. It is fantastic having a theatre there. One of the things that people don't realise about our theatre is that it is actually a major tourist attraction in its own right. It's own right. About 32% of ticket sales are sold to people outside 2830. Wow, I didn't now, know that. I remember when I first got on council, one of the big campaigns, when I first stood for council in 2004, I was first elected, one of the big campaigns run by a group called Dubbo Arts, which mm. doesn't exist anymore, mm was to focus the candidates on getting a theatre for Dubbo. So mm. that was a, a campaign that really was being driven by people in the community mm. to, to try and make a change. And, and it happened, obviously, in the end. We had a special rate variation. We've got a theatre. I was a big supporter of it. I thought it made sense to have a theatre. Yep. But I never, ever thought during that campaign mm. that it would be a tourist attraction. Yes. But when you've got some excellent staff down there, which we have got, who do manage to organise some fantastic events down there... Yep. And this is one of them. So we've got Hearth Theatre, and they're bringing Death of a Salesman. And this is one of the, the texts that I studied way back in year 12. It was a couple of years ago. 1912 or 1913. <laughs> when was that? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> well, you're being a bit harsh on me because the play was only written in 1949. That's so actually. it was at least after 1949. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but again, this is one of those things that I think shows the value yes. of our theatre. Yes. I guarantee that Hearth Theatre would not bring... Mm. Death of a Salesman or a production of that quality yes. to somewhere that had a little town hall and a flat floor mm. theatre and not mm. great acoustics. Mm. When they bring these sort of events to somewhere like the Double Regional Theatre and Convention Centre, yes. they know they're going to be able to show off their talents yeah. at the highest level because they've got a theatre that can yeah. take advantage of those talents. And how often is it the case too when you go along to see these shows and at the end of the show, particularly things like a theatre show where a drama's on, and at the end of it they'll all, the actors will stand and they'll sort of thank you very much, about a wonderful night and how beautiful is this theatre? You're right actually, you do often hear that even if you go to a comedy festival, they yes. say when you go to something serious, when you go to a ballet, yes. they're all very complimentary about it. But you've got... Actors like Paul English and Margot Knight coming along, mm -hmm. so well-known actors there. Yep. Again, Hearth Theatre is well-known as well. Uh, 18th of August, I'm not even sure if there will be any tickets left at this stage. Mm. They've got two performances, a 10am one and an 8pm one. I think you're going along taking your students to the 8pm one. That's right, we are, yes. Yeah, which is you know, great, good to see that ability again. Oh, they're excited too, don't worry. They're, they are pumped. And if you go back a few years, you might have been a very keen teacher and organised a group to get on a bus yep. and go down to Sydney a great expense to parents and a great concern for teachers taking yes. students on a bus and all the risks associated with that compared to, say, oh. kids will go down there and meet you at the theatre. Funny you should say that. Only today I was talking to uh, one of the teachers about this and sort of said, look, uh, um, going to watch uh, Death of a Salesman with uh, this literacy class I've got. And, and she said, oh, that's fantastic. So you're going to Sydney, are you, to, you know, heading, heading down there? You're going to go off on a you know, Monday night over and organise it then for the stay over? And I said... No, it's happening here in Dubbo. <laughs> and she went, oh, my goodness, is that right? It's actually coming here. And I said, yeah, yeah it's coming here. How good is that? Yeah. So that's what I mean. That's the value people don't always see in mm. what we've got there. But even local productions, I mean, Dubbo Theatre Company's already started right. Jesus Christ Superstar. Yes. And you've got some great local talent there. Yes. But I, I know from having done work with Dubbo Theatre Company, 
you lift your level to another level when you're performing on a stage of that quality. Oh, yes. So again, it's great for local performers, it's great for school groups, it's great for the local of Steadford, yep. and great for these various productions that come along through Dubbo. Mm. I'm at uh, looking at this one here. Uh, coming up this week is a very special moment there in Wellington as the fact you have a citizenship ceremony occurring. Now, am I right to say the fact that this is the first time in Wellington that they've actually held a citizenship ceremony? Normally these would be held in Dubbo, wouldn't they? Well, the first time I've done one in Wellington. Right. It's not the first time ever because if you okay, go back... Okay, so they have, they have had a few before. That's right. If you go back to the old Wellington Shire Council, yes. they would have had citizenship ceremonies sure, then. Sure, sure. The, this council, obviously, this council that I'm a part of now, we were formed back in December 2021. Yep. So in that time... Is this the first one for the Dubbo Regional Council now? I don't know whether one was ever done in the first term of council right. when they were elected in 2017 through to 2021, but certainly my first one. So yep. the first one we've done at least since 2021, yep. or December 2021. Mm. But it's exciting, and I've talked about one we've done in Dubbo. We did one recently in Dubbo mm. with 38 new citizens. Mm. It's exciting, and I'll actually really enjoy going to Wellington to do it because, yes. again, it'll be a new group, and it's open to the public. Anyone can come mm. along. It's on the 25th of July. It'll yep. be 11 a.m. It's at the Wellington Aquatic Leisure Centre. Oh, okay. In, in, in the conference room there. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, okay. Not in the pool. So. Yeah, so we're not <laughs> going to bring your swimmers in the water or something. It'll be 12 <laughs> degrees, but I'm sure you'll have a lovely time. That's right. We're <laughs> not, not going to be John the Baptist and, and uh, dunk everyone or something. But, look, I do get excited by them, and this will be a much more intimate ceremony because there'll be yes. fewer people being made citizens nice. here in Wellington. But it's great to see... Wellington, part of that as well, and great to see people coming along, hopefully from the public to welcome these people into their community. Yeah, absolutely. Now a note here, uh, Matt, that during the week on your Merrill Memo, you wrote about Parkinson's Law of Triviality. (laughs) What a great title. What a great title indeed. So, uh, look, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on Parkinson's Law of Triviality, but uh, briefly, tell me what it was about. One of the things I do when I write my mayoral memos, I always like to come up with a topic that's not necessarily just a, a run-of-the-mill topic that's a thing that council's doing. I like to kind of take one step back and look at something slightly bigger picture. Nice. Parkinson's Law of Triviality is something that I've been familiar with for a long time, been involved in lots of committees, whether it be rotary committees or PNF or council, whatever it might be. Yep. And that law, and when I say law, it's, it's an eponymous law, so it's not something that's set in concrete. So, so this is Parkinson's in the title, eponymous meaning the fact that the name of the person's in the title. Yeah, so it's like Murphy's Law, that yes. type of thing. Yeah. So the Parkinson's Law of Triviality says, the time spent on any agenda item will be inversely proportional to the sum of money involved. And it's actually, there's some behavioural so research. So true. It is, it is. There's some behavioural research that goes into it that when you get something that's a small decision then you can understand it a bit better. So you debate it at length. Yes. When you get a really big decision, sometimes people, it's just too complicated. And one of the things I think of is, for example, if you had a large commercial development, you had a board of directors sitting around talking about it. Yes. They might briefly go past the planning, the project, the the regulatory rules, because they don't necessarily understand the intricate details. Yes. But when it comes to the car park, They'll all talk about exactly how much We've room you need car. for car We're park. We're going to the car park. I've got an opinion on this. I know. All the other bureaucratic stuff, I don't know too much. I'll just nod approvingly. It, yes. And that's it. So yes. you, you'll debate the car park size at great length. But <laughs> yes. when it comes to the hundreds of million dollars spent on the development, you go, yeah. oh, that sounds okay. That's about right. I've been involved in previous times with councils that have approved the annual budget mm. within minutes. Mm. A large sum of money. We're talking $250 million here, quarter of a billion dollars. And, and in this particular budget, that's exactly right. And I was yes. interested to see, and I did mention this to councillors, I was interested to see whether Parkinson's Law would hold yes. for this group of councillors or whether we're a little bit different. And I was actually quite impressed. We spent 35 minutes at the council meeting debating our $250 million oh, well, budget. That's pretty impressive. That Happy was longer days. than I thought because yes. we've had workshops and things beforehand yes, as well. Yes. So a little bit more extra knowledge probably leading into that one. Yes, well Exactly done. right. But... Again, I've seen budgets approved in much shorter time frames than that. Mm. But then at that same meeting, to maybe give Parkinson's Law of Triviality a little bit of credibility, at that same meeting, there was over an hour that was spent at that meeting discussing and deliberating the location of the state government's alcohol and other drugs facility. Is that right? And the irony is, of course, that we have no jurisdiction to actually say where (laughs) that particular facility will be located. Yet we spent over an hour on that, 35 minutes we spent on Uh, a $250 million budget. Parkinson's law of triviality strikes again. Exactly. 
Big week this week, Matt. We've got the uh, council meeting that's coming up this week. And, uh, oh, this is actually quite nice because it's actually going to be the first time that the new chamber is going to be used. So we'll have an official opening of the new chamber. Ooh, We're ooh. inviting along all, all former councillors. Oh, is that right? Former directors oh, to come along. Fantastic. To the official ribbon cutting. Councillor Lewis Burns has volunteered to do a smoking ceremony. Oh, so that'll lovely. be very, very exciting. Nice. Well, that'll yeah. be outside the chamber. We don't want to have <laughs> the smoke alarms go off. That's right. <laughs> but now it's a big, uh, big yeah, occasion, I think, about a new chamber. You don't do this very often. Doesn't very often, no. 1980 right. was the last time wow, that we had a new chamber. So it's something that I think is significant. Yeah. It's a council council meeting anyway, so we talk about it a lot, yep. that council meetings, decisions are made, resolutions are made, this is where rubber hits the road, mm, mm. and this is where the resolutions, we can have all the chats and all the workshops and all the rest of it, but when we get to the council meeting, that's when the decisions are made. So mm. tune in, come along and look yep. at it in person. Tuesday night, is that right? Thursday night. Thursday night, Thursday sorry, night yes, Thursday at night. 5.30, come along, we encourage people to come along or at least tune in at home and yes. actually watch and see the process and how it all works. Yeah. But this one's a bit different yes. because it's the first meeting in a new chamber. Hopefully it all works the way it should work. Yep. But I think councils are pretty excited about this. Um, this is a big decision. Yeah, looking forward to hearing about all the feedback next week. Well, Matt, big program. Got through a lot there today. Um, and, of course, at the end of our program each week, a little podcast, you do your Limerick of the Week. So, from this big program today of areas we focus on, what are you going to focus on for your Limerick? Always a trouble to find the highlight of the week because mm. there's so much. I mean, there's so many things we've talked Absolutely. about there. So many things we didn't talk about because there's right. just not enough time. Yes. But this week, I think the highlight for me was Samuel Johnson's visit and yes. making Dubbo, hopefully, a world first in precision medicine. So, Samuel, this is a limerick for you. Oh, wonderful. In Dubbo, Sam Johnson did stand with an Archibald prize in the land. He gazed at his face in that gallery space, saying, it captures me quite grand. <laughs> I have to say, that's probably one of your best ones yet. Oh, you say that every I week. I but I generally mean it this week. That was actually a really good one. <laughs> it just seemed to sort of really work. That was fantastic. Well done. Good idea, mate. All right, folks, that wraps us up again for another episode of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, everybody, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.